Welcome to Getting In, a college coach conversation. On this show, the team of experts from Bright Horizons College Coach aim to demystify college admissions and finance. From building a well-balanced college list and developing a payment strategy to creating a high school plan and more. Each episode will help guide your family through various steps of the process. Enjoy the show. Good afternoon, everyone, and welcome to this week's edition of Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher. I haven't had an opportunity to host the show for quite a while. I spoke with our producer, and I was assured that it's not because I've been doing anything wrong so far, but I'm I'm very excited to have the opportunity to be back today, to get a chance to talk to all of you who are listeners, um, and especially to talk to our wonderful guests. We're heading into September, which is a very important month in the college application and college finance uh, process. There are a number of key conversations that we want to have today that are really pragmatically focused. We're going to talk a little bit about finalizing the college list in our final segment, and we're also going to have a discussion about supporting documents within the college application in our second segment today. So for those of you who are seniors who are getting ready to apply this fall, those are some things to keep your eye on. With our first segment today, we're going to talk a little bit about finance. And while I think that the conversation is probably most relevant for seniors, I do think that there's some orientation here to concepts in college finance that are helpful for everyone who might be thinking about college at some point into their future. And so, because I'm not the finance expert, never have been, never will be, we've got a great guest here from our college coach finance team joining us, Amy Yorsaner. Hey, Amy, welcome to the show. I'm happy to be here. Thank you so much. I'm very glad to have you here. And we're going to talk about something that I think I often take for granted as knowledge that folks might have when it comes to applying to college that I think is a great foundation for people to begin to unpack aid and cost of attendance and you know exactly what they're going to be paying when their student goes off to college. So discount rate. Let's just yes. discuss what does it mean to have a tuition discount rate? What is that term? And when people encounter that, whether they're reading it in news articles or it's something that a financial aid officer is sharing with them, how can they begin to understand what that means? Essentially, like a tuition discount is like any other discount. You can go to a store and get a discount. So it's really not paying full price for, for that product. And in which case, what we're talking about, that product is education, right? So the tuition discount is really referring to any kind of gift aid, scholarships or grants that a school uses to reduce your tuition costs. So it essentially means you're not paying the sticker price for tuition. And sticker price is a term that we hear quite often as well. And usually it's associated with cars because literally there's a sticker on the window of a car in the dealership. I've been told you never pay that price when you walk in to buy a car. Uh, But there are folks out there who will pay the sticker price for a college education, and there are many folks who will not. How do you help families to think a little bit about what the sticker price is in relation to their likely cost when their student chooses to enroll at that institution? Sure. So there's when we talk in terms of price, we talk in terms of two prices. Yes, that sticker price, the people who will pay full price. And then there's something we call net price. And that is that price that you're going to be expected to pay kind of after any scholarships or financial aid offers. So when you're thinking about that, like what goes into the cost of attendance, which is the sticker price. So when you see cost of attendance, think, I guess, sticker price. That 
encapsulates all direct charges that you'll see from a school. So that's tuition, uh, room, food, um, things like that that are directly charged from the school. And then you have all these indirect costs like books and supplies, um, transportation, personal expenses. Those expenses you have, they exist, but you're never going to see them as a charge on the bill. So all of that makes up the cost of attendance, whereas the, the net price is kind of that difference after any kind of aid or discount has been applied. And so you really want to focus on what's that net price. So I think it's easy for families to get caught up in, oh, that sticker price is too high. I'm not even going to apply because why bother? I can't afford that. When you really do need to take a look at what are they offering you before you make that ultimate choice? Just go in eyes wide open about what the differential is. And so you could be walking on a college campus on a tour this fall and you you encounter three different students and those students are paying three different prices for the same education based on tuition discounting, which is being provided by the institutions. Absolutely. They could also all be paying the exact same price. We don't know that for sure, right? right. But maybe they're paying different prices. Right. And okay. if you talk to your neighbors and your friends and whatever, they're going to be like, well, I paid this and I paid this. So that's what yeah. some families expect to pay. And you yeah. can't you can't compare that way. <laughs> you have to really look at your circumstances. And that's that is different from, say, going to a, you know, a, an online shopping sale and you get 15 percent off right. and you can guarantee that you're going to pay the same price as somebody else who has that same discount. Exactly. So I think that's where some of that trickiness comes into play. Yes, now, absolutely. A lot of people, when they talk about aid or when they talk about discounting their tuition, they bring up the concept of scholarships, right? My kid mm -hmm. needs to get a scholarship. I have to have a scholarship to go to school, but that's just one form of discounting, right? Can you talk about the different ways that schools engage in discounting and the different kinds of discounts that might be available to families? Sure. I say the two most common that you're going to hear are the merit, merit-based aid, which mm -hmm. is based on your academic profile, and that's set by the Office of Admissions. Um, and then there's need-based financial aid, which is based on your financial circumstances. Another common one that, you know, the families may be familiar with is athletic funding. All of these are different types of ways that the school will, will utilize discounts. Those are the most common ways. So not everybody's going to be qualified for every kind of scholarship, right? And I think that right. the obvious example is with athletics, right? If you yes. if you can't, you know, run a mile in, you know, less than seven minutes, you're probably not going to be getting on the track team, for example. That's a that's a pretty simple example. But I think with with scholarships, with academic scholarships, it's sometimes a little bit harder for folks to know whether they're going to be in that bucket or not. Are they someone that's going to qualify for a, a discount or a scholarship? through merit aid. Um, any recommendations for how families can start to think about or at least get a broad idea of whether a discount might apply to them from a merit standpoint? Sure. If you guys haven't caught on by now, like we're talking about discounts and the way that we've talked about it, what I want you to understand, if nothing else, is that whether it's merit or finan uh, financial need-based aid or athletic, it's recruitment funding. Okay, so they're they're targeting particular audiences this way um, with how they allocate these funds. Merit aid is based on academic profile. So where a student's academic profile exceeds that of the typically admitted student at that school is where we would expect a student to have merit funding. So um, if you were looking at your college list, your probable or safety schools is where you have the highest capacity to receive merit scholarship. Right. And it all also depends on what the school's budget is that year and where are they recruiting? You know, what are they targeting? What population? Who are they looking for? Mm -hmm. I it was very interesting. I was at a block party this past Friday and I was speaking with 
uh, a woman who graduated from Whitman College back in 1961. And um, she mentioned that she had set up a very small scholarship in order to attract students who had immigrated from uh, a, a certain population of Eastern European countries because she had come from Russia. And she thought that that was a great contribution to the college. And so she wanted to set up a scholarship to help support students who were also coming from that area. And it was such a, she was awesome. It was a really fun conversation to have with her, but a really great example of how an institution might have certain priorities that are probably invisible to applicants. Right. It may be a student that is applying from Ukraine has no idea that there's this scholarship at Whitman College waiting for them, but Whitman is aware of that. And that right. will affect the recruitment of that student and the, the discount rate that that student then gets when they actually arrive on campus. There's I, also exactly yeah, and there's, sorry. there's also like a very important like distinction here. Uh, for those schools that are really, really selective, right? So a lot of people will say, well, I can get a scholarship to an Ivy, or I can get a scholarship to a school that maybe doesn't offer uh, merit aid. How, how do people think about aid at schools that don't offer that kind of academic scholarship? And is there still money available at those schools? The type of money that would be available at those schools are is typically going to be need-based financially. They dedicate their their funding solely to um, creating economic diversity on campus. That's really what when I said that you know even financial need-based aid is recruitment funding. That's what they're looking to do. They're looking to make sure that they create economic diversity on campus. And at that level of competitiveness that that it takes to get into those schools, they're already accepting the top of the top of the top students and of their applicant pool, right? So right. how do they then decide who's more meritorious than another candidate? To me, I always say, I heard the saying a long time ago, but it's like nailing jello to a tree. It's impossible <laughs> at that level. So, you know, how they have decided to kind of allocate those resources is based on need-based financial aid um, and, yeah. and focusing on that economic diversity. So if, if someone's saying that they got a scholarship from the Ivies for merit and academic, not that I've seen. Um, it's, it's really unrealistic to ha kind of have that expectation. If you can qualify for need-based aid, then yes, that is a definitive uh, possibility there. Yeah. And, and I, I think that, you know, when we think about it in the admission side, it is hard enough to identify the students that you want to admit. Right. Never mind taking a, a smaller subset of that group and deciding that that group is is deserving of aid or more deserving of of a merit aid than some of the other students are. Um, that doesn't mean that money doesn't exist out there. I had a student this past year who qualified for a stipend for research at an Ivy where he was offered admission, and so that is a possibility that occasionally comes up. But we wouldn't call that a scholarship. It's yeah. it's based on further work, further effort right. that he's going to undertake as a student um, at that institution. And for uh, returning students, if it's offered at the returning student level, unless you know there's a unique circumstances, kind of like what you're mentioning, like the departments would have the information on that. It wouldn't necessarily go through admissions or financial aid. It would be kind of departmental funding as a returning student, like what opportunities exist to explore the pathway that you're looking for. Now, Amy, I want to sort of step outside of this and just think a little bit more conceptually for a second. And, and I don't know if you have an answer to this, but I think it's a question that a lot of people will probably intuitively ask, which is why do colleges do this? Um, you know, why not just set the price lower? You've essentially got um, a sticker price for tuition. Mm -hmm. And at many institutions, the discount rate on average is going to be pretty significant. And so a lot of students are actually paying less than the full freight. Right. Why do colleges do this? Why not just lower the price for everybody? What are the, the institutional priorities that make this a part of a recruitment strategy? 
I think part of it is, you know, what is that positive signal in your brain that you get like when you've saved? Right. So part of it is optics. It's it's school. I mean, schools would say it allows them to send positive signals to prospective students, you know, regarding what quality of education they're going to have or, you know, that they're, this is how they show appreciation for students and, and promote educational value. Um, so I, I would say that that's their perspective, you know, from from a purchaser of services and goods, you know, think about the optics of that versus that lower price, whether or not whatever price is set, we always want a discount. We always want to oh, pay yeah. less. So oh, yeah. whether you have that sticker price that everybody pays or you get the discount, which one feels right in your brain? Like, so conceptually and logically, we could sit there and say, if everybody just paid the same price, it would be fine. But then there'd still be people who want that discount. So for me, I think it's a little of the positive mental energy about what happens when you get a discount. I think that's I think that's right. There's a big part of that that comes into play, and I think that that's very intuitive for us as consumers to yeah. consider. We have to be reminded that that of course schools are competing with one another, and so a school that is able to offer a student a scholarship might have a leg up against a school that doesn't offer that scholarship, even if the actual net price between those two schools is the same, right. uh, because one school has a lower sticker price. Um, you also alluded to economic diversity on campus. And I think that um, probably a lot of colleges would say, not publicly, that there right. are students who can pay the full tuition. And we want those students to pay the full tuition at our campus because it helps to support students who cannot afford to pay the right. full tuition and supports the financial aid for those students as well. Is that part of that calculation that colleges are figuring out like what how can we think about tuition prices and 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 set those in order to maximize our revenue so it's not i don't think any schools and i've worked in schools for at the at the college level prior to coming to to bright horizons college coach right. i've worked in higher education financial aid offices for 20 years um and i would never say um that i ever thought about looking at financial aid need-based financial aid as as a recruitment tool um mm -hmm. But it really is about, okay, you know, do you want all of one type of student? You know, the experiences that, that people have at, at different income levels is vastly different. What, how people got to where they had to be, you know, the approaches may have been very different. And so bringing those different perspectives to campus is important. But in a financial aid office, do they say, okay, well, we already have too many people at this income level? No, those conversations don't happen. Schools set their budget for their need-based financial aid. And if you qualify, you get it. So it's not like we're, you know, a school would exclude people at this, you know, income level versus that income level if they are need blind. So let me put the caveat onto that. If a right, school is need right. aware, then into your acceptance decision, then that would, you know, then they would potentially bring that into an admit decision, but not necessarily a finance decision. If they've accepted you and you've applied on time by deadlines, then they're going to review you for that financial need. That economic diversity is just kind of a byproduct, like in the back of, you know, school's minds. Yes, it exists. They want to create that diversity, which is why they offer it. But it's not the glaring outward sign of recruitment, if you will. That's great. I, and and really good perspective to have from inside a financial aid office, which is which is one of the reasons that when we hire college yeah. finance experts, we are only hiring folks that have worked in those financial aid offices because they can offer that that perspective. Right. In the final time that we have, Amy, um, got about a minute. Sure. Uh, any recommendations for students who are sewing up their college lists. We're going to talk about that in a later segment, but are starting to look for these kinds of recruitment aid. How can they be on the lookout for opportunities to maximize their discount? I would certainly 
look and make sure you have a balanced list, you know, whether, um, do you have, you know, yes, having reach schools on your list is great. Um, but that's the least likely, uh, scenario for getting kind of merit scholarship and, right. and depending on where your family's financial circumstances are, which you can check if the schools do have net price calculators. They are in the process of updating those with all the reg changes coming down. That's a whole nother topic of discussion, but, you know, really be looking at those balanced lists and think about fit and program. So does the program, depending whether it's probable, possible, or reach, you know, are they competitive programs? So where they land on the list doesn't mean that the value of that education is lower. So I would be looking at that balanced list. And if you are wanting to maximize those dollars, then yeah, spend some time taking a closer look and a deeper dive at that probable and possible list um, that you may see. If if you have the, the college coach benefit, you may be able to do that customized college list. But if you're working with somebody creating that list and you can identify where they land, then I would look at the wide array and not necessarily focus on that sticker price that we were talking about before, but looking at, yes, there's a sticker price. Have the conversation about what can we realistically afford going into those application processes and say, okay, this school's really expensive, but if they come in with this kind of aid package, we may be able to consider them a reality. Um, So go in with that mindset instead of assuming that you're just going to be able to make that happen. Go in with what you can realistically afford, what's that, what's that benchmark, and then see, you know, where the aid is to see if that really is a reality. But I wouldn't cut yourself off from applying just because of that sticker price. So balanced totally list reasonable. and don't look at the sticker price per se. Just keep it in, keep it as a factor, not the decider. That's great. And I think there are some great little nuggets that you mentioned there uh, I, with intending to do so, but I don't know if our listeners picked up on it, but we'll return to that in our final segment. We talk a little bit more about finalizing that college with list and what a balanced list looks like. So appreciate that foreshadowing, Amy. Right. It was great to have you on the show today. You're welcome back anytime. I'd be happy to be here anytime. So thanks right. so much. Good Great. luck, everybody. Appreciate it. Folks, when we come back, we're going to talk about some supporting documents within the applications. So don't go away. Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com experts to learn more. Enjoying our shows and can't get enough of us? Follow us on Instagram at Voice America Talk Radio and see what we're cooking up for you. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more.
You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Hey, everyone. Welcome back to Getting In, a college coach conversation. I'm your host, Ian Fisher. Still here. Same episode. Uh, But we've got another guest, a new guest joining us today. Uh, My colleague, friend, pal, Abigail Anderson. Hey, Abigail. Hey, Ian. Doing well. Thanks. It's nice to see you. You sent an email out to the team pretty recently. Um, You are in North Carolina now in the Durham area. And you were talking about back to school and running into college students all around town. Do you want to just share what that's like? Like, I, I love that that kind of the energy of of what it's like to be around freshmen who are getting ready to start their years. I had really forgotten how exciting it is to be around freshmen and families moving in. And I was actually walking through the Duke campus yesterday, needed to go buy a Duke t-shirt because I'm going to a football game on Monday night. Uh-huh. And um, I had this... I turned to my partner, my husband, and I said, can you imagine what it felt like when every single one of these students opened their admit letter to Duke and how excited their family was? And he just looked at me like, no, but that's why you love your job. (laughs) And there is this totally amazing energy of being in a really big college town. And there are a lot of schools here. So there's a lot of it. Yeah. I mean, that's totally understandable that you would get excited about that idea. And I think the stuff that he gets excited about in his professional life, like for us makes no sense either. So we'll leave that aside. We're not going to talk about that work today, but of course, all of those freshmen had to apply to college. And in order to apply to college is my segue here. They had to put together an application and the application has supplemental components and supporting components as well. And we want to talk especially about some of those supporting components, but also the supplements that might come along with a college application. And just before we jumped on, I was sort of like, you you asked me, well, what's the difference between a supporting and a supplemental? And maybe I'm making a distinction without a difference, but I think of supporting documents as being components of an application that are in support of a student's candidacy, candidacy but are not actually created by the student. Um, so what what are some examples of what those supporting documents might be? And I will say, I I at first I thought to myself, is this Ian just like playing semantics, supporting versus supplemental? Because I know you love Doesn't words. Happen. You yeah. do love words. But then the moment you gave me that definition, I went, yeah, that's totally how it works. Supplemental are the things that the student can submit on their behalf that are in addition to kind of the regular old application and supporting our a lot of other people are helping you to complete your application. So big and basic supporting app, uh, components of the application would be your transcript. Yeah. It's a big one. Um, letters of recommendation. It's another huge set. Um, the school and the school report, which actually there are two types of school reports, but maybe we'll get into that. You know, I want to start with the school report because I think students usually think about the the transcript. Of course, I need to get my grades to a to a university in order to apply there. There are some schools that allow students to fill out their grade report on the application itself and won't actually let them submit a transcript until right. they enroll. And the University of California, I think, is the biggest example of that. 
But most schools do want to see a transcript and it often does come with the the secondary school report. But I think students are less familiar with that and what it is and what kind of content is actually contained therein. So who prepares the secondary school report and what's in there? The secondary school report is probably like the most important part of the application, second to the application form. So it's it's a bulky part of the application. It is put together by your school counselor, your high school counselor on your behalf. And I know, you know, I've been at College Coach for eight years and I'm an avid listener of the podcast. And I know that so many of your guests and my colleagues will say, be nice to your school counselor, create that relationship early, get to know them, know the deadlines. This is why they have so much work to do on your behalf as an applicant. And the secondary school report that's the title that the common application uses. And I think we default to talking about the common application because it's the most commonly used application form, but um, other application forms or platforms will have something analogous. It might not be called exactly the secondary school report, but it contains a form that your school counselor fills out on your behalf with a lot of questions about who you are within your high school yeah. Um, where you go to high school. It contains your transcript. They actually attach it. It contains the high school profile mm-hmm. and it can contain a letter of recommendation just from your high school counselor as well. Yeah. And I mean, it's hugely important. It's a space where as readers, uh, we spend a lot of time yeah. reviewing that perspective of the counselor and not necessarily in the letter of recommendation because there is a wide variance between the quality of those letters of recommendation. Just as you were describing the work that goes into this, I was like, oh my gosh, some of these public school counselors and the number of these that they have to put together is wild to think about. Um, those letters of recommendation are quite short and not as personal and understandably so. And or they might not even be that. one. And let's there clarify, might not even I think be we should one. clarify. Yeah, and that's totally okay. Sorry. And it might not be you. one. Yeah, no, that's fine. And so that's part of it. That establishes context as well for the student's experience, right? So context is that big word that we use all the time. And the secondary school report offers a great deal of context about a student's involvement in their high school career over the course of four years, but also what's been available to them in their high school career and how they've taken advantage of that. Um, so hugely helpful. How do students navigate the process of getting this put together? Like, what are the mechanics of this? Do they have to wait in line outside of their counselor's office? Are there deadlines they need to look to? Is it just something that they submit online? What's your recommendation for for students? And I know it depends. Let's so stipulate it, right? We'll Let's get skip that, out of that the way. answer. Yeah. But I do think that there are probably as many different answers to this question as there are high schools in the country. And so I know a lot of the students I'm working with headed back to school either last week or heading back to school this week. Mm-hmm. And what I am recommending to every single one of them, maybe not on the first day, like maybe make it through the first day of class, find your locker, high five your new senior friends but maybe within the first week, go check in with the school counselor and ask if you haven't already received this information, what do you need from me? How can I support you in supporting me in the application process? And I think students and families can be shocked to hear that 
Sometimes school counselors need lead times of six weeks before an application is due um, in order to get all these pieces together. Because if you really sit down and think about it from their perspective, to your point, Ian, if the school counselor's load is, say, 400 students times, let's say, an average of, let's go on the conservative side, five applications, that's you know, it, that, that a really lot. adds up. It's a lot. So yeah, that's too, a lot. Too, too, that's a lot of pieces yeah. of paper, whether it's virtual or, well, it's, they're all virtual, but yeah. um, that really adds up. So you've got to give them a lot of time. So know their deadline. I think that's the most important thing. You brought that up. Go ask, what is their deadline for knowing your list? I've seen high schools where you fill out a piece of paper for every school you're going to apply to. So you write down the name of the school, the deadline, you might, they might ask for some other information, like, does it have to be an official transcript? Do you need a letter of recommendation? Um, I've seen other schools that do this all virtually through a program like Naviance or Maya Learning or SCORE. So lots of different ways. Lots of different ways to do it. And you just want to make sure that you do it the way that your counselor prefers that you do. And you, you mentioned that it's helpful to ask that counselor, hey, what can I give you? What can I provide for you to make this easier? That is a great question. I always encourage my students to do that. But the second piece is to then follow up and do the thing that they ask you to do, right? So if they say, I'd like for you to give me a list of your colleges and just a sentence or two on why you're interested in each of them. Okay, do that and give it to your counselor. So don't ask what you can do. Like you're at a dinner party and you ask if I can help, right? But you're not really hoping to help. You're just hoping that they're going to say, oh, no, don't, don't, please sit down, right? So- follow through on that. Um, counselor, that's a big piece. Teacher letters of recommendations are a little bit smaller and, and the forms that the teacher letters include are more of a vehicle to allow for that narrative recommendation, but there still are components to that as well. So what do students have to do pragmatically in terms of pulling together those teacher letters of recommendation? So the most important thing is to sit down and strategize about who you're going to ask. And I think most people are going to ask one to two teachers. Um, And I know we've done segments on that before, so I'm sure people can go listen to our archives on that. But the most important thing is to ask the teacher. Um, And I would say ask as early as you can. If you didn't ask in May or June before school let out for the summer, again, I would say within the first week back to school, make that ask. Um, Many teachers, because of their caseload, have, they set a limit. They say, I'm only going to write X number or the first why number of students to ask me get a letter and the rest go into some sort of lottery system. So ask right away. Um, And oftentimes, kind of like you mentioned with school counselors, I think teachers will ask you to fill out a brag sheet or to answer a series of questions. You know, what did you like about my class? What was challenging? What do you see your strengths are? They might ask you to submit um, your CV, your resume to them or your main college essay to them. And that's really honestly, they're not doing it to create work. They're trying to tailor what they write about you to what you see in yourself. So do what they ask of you as well. Definitely. And, you know, understand also that when you ask a teacher to write a letter of recommendation and they say, yes, that doesn't mean they're going to follow up and do it the very next day. Um, It's probably not something they're going to do within the next week. But you still want to put them in a position to be able to submit that letter of recommendation in a timely fashion on your behalf. 
students aren't going to get a chance to review this content, right? This is not something that comes across their desk where they stamp it and then it goes off to colleges. Um, but they can see when those letters of recommendation have been essentially attached to their common application, right? When the okay. teacher has actually gone in there and filled out that form and pressed submit, and then it goes along with the application that ultimately lands on the desk of, of colleges and universities. I think that can be a real moment of anxiety for students is there there can be t- one to two to three weeks of lag time between, hey, Mr. Fisher, did you submit my letter of recommendation? And Mr. Fisher says, sure, yeah, yeah. yeah, I I submitted it. It went in. I got it in right before the deadline. And then the student goes and checks their application portal. So their application portal at Clemson or their application portal at Duke. Each school has their own. I think we talk about that right. a lot too. But those portals don't auto. It's not an auto update. It's not um, AI doing this work that we are aware of. I mean, maybe right. it will be in the future, but it's a right. human who's hand matching. Like this is Abigail Anderson from Durham, North Carolina, and this is her letter. So it can take two to three weeks. And I always remind parents, families, like, don't panic. If your teacher said they did it. They did it. Trust them. And it's worth saying also that most schools will grant some leeway for supporting documents that arrive after the deadline. That is not universally true. And you can check with those institutions. But for most of them, they'll say everything the student is responsible for needs to be here by the deadline. But some of these supporting documents, it's outside of the student's control in some cases. And so they can come in a little bit later and you won't be penalized if a teacher say presses that button a little bit too late or forgets to do so. Um, But as with everything, you want to check individual colleges and what their policies are um, and make sure to communicate that to the teachers who are writing those letters on your behalf. Um, They would love to have deadlines too. And back in the old days, we used to give them stamped addressed envelopes in order to write those letters of recommendation. Now you just have to communicate with them uh, what that that should look like. Anything that we're forgetting, I, you know, I'm surprised that we spent this amount of time on supporting documents, but like it it really is important. And I think it's one of those things that students don't fully consider because they're so focused on the core of the application for themselves. Is there any advice or any other thoughts that you want to push? I I would just leave one closing piece of advice, which is, I think that this, the prep for this part of the application is actually prepping students for lots of other parts of life. So being nice to and being conscientious and thoughtful and organized and kind to the administrators who are helping you. So like your school counselor or your letters of recommendation in the college application process, that's a really important skill to develop. Now it's going to behoove you when you're applying to graduate school or for your first job. And really you want those people to want to help you, mm-hmm. right? So so work on cultivating that now. I think you and I have both ended up in a situation where somebody, a student we work with asks for something last minute and you're often, you feel good helping the student who's been really thoughtful and kind to you. So yes. just think about how you treat those people. 100%, uh, good advice for life, I think. Yeah. There we go. Um, all right. That's it. Thanks for jumping in uh, as a pinch hitter here last minute. It was great to have you on the show and uh, you can come back again another time. All right. Great. When we come back, we're going to talk about steps to finalize that college list. Big, big part of the process, huge milestone. So don't go away. Uh, We look forward to the next conversation. 
Voice America is on LinkedIn. Connect with us today. For 25 years, families have trusted Bright Horizons College Coach to guide them through the college admissions process. With nearly all of our students getting into one of their top choice schools, it's no wonder why. Our experience is unmatched. As former admissions officers at top colleges and universities, we've read the essays, reviewed the applications, and made the admissions decisions. We know firsthand what colleges are looking for. Ready to meet our team? Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. A little birdie told me Voice America is on Twitter. Follow us at Voice America TRN. In every college application, there's that moment of pause before a student hits send. Is this my best work? With Bright Horizons College Coach, your student will hit submit with confidence. We take the guesswork out of applying to college. Students get help with everything from essays, summer planning and visits, to testing strategy, merit aid, and more. As for our results, 100% of students have earned acceptances, nearly all to one of their top choice goals. Visit getintocollege.com slash experts to learn more. You are listening to Getting In, a college coach conversation. To submit a question for an upcoming listener Q&A segment or to suggest an idea for a future segment, please send an email to gettingin.voiceamerica at gmail.com. Now, back to the show. Everyone, welcome back to Getting In, a College Coach Conversation. We've saved perhaps the most important part of today's discussion for last, uh, and that is a conversation around the college list. And joining me to talk about getting that final list set and tied up with a bow uh, is my colleague, Zaragoza Guerra. Hi, hi Zaragoza. Welcome to the show. Thank you, Ian. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. And we talk about the college list in a lot of different kinds of ways. And we always use the phrase college list. And sometimes that refers to the long list of probable schools that you might consider as possibilities. Sometimes mm-hmm. it refers to a short list of schools from which you're going to choose the ones to which you'll apply. But we today are talking about that final list of schools. These are places that are going to get your application this fall. These are all schools that you're seriously considering for attendance in the spring. And I think what we want to start with is just some characterization of what that list ought to include. So what are some stipulations that you would recommend to guide folks as they think about putting that that final list together? Yes, when I'm thinking about that overall final college list, you know, the one with actual applications, the actual, not just contenders, but ones that you're actually submitting uh, your application to. I'm oftentimes reminding students to make sure that they think about strategy here. You know, what is the the end game with your college applications? Um, and you want to come out of the process with some choices. Uh, you yes. want to be able to decide between schools. Yes. Uh, and it makes uh, no sense necessarily to apply to 20 school and have to decide between (laughs) one or two schools, you'd rather have um, a good number of schools um, at the end of the day uh, to decide upon. So I'm encouraging students to think not only about what we would call their reaches, those schools that 
um, are a bit harder to get into, but those schools where they've got you know strong probability of yeah. being admitted, um, that's going to be important uh, to round out your college list with those set of schools. And then uh, those schools where it could go either way, those schools that are kind of right in the middle. Um, and I think you know we're generally encouraging students to think about applying to at, at a minimum seven schools. Okay, and thinking about those two probable schools, those three possible schools, and maybe those two reaches. I think a lot of students might be applying to a lot more schools than just seven. And I think that's absolutely understandable. And sometimes, you know, depending upon a student's list and uh, the um, mood rates for some of the schools that they're considering, I might encourage them to apply to a few more. Um, I think where you round out those extra set of schools is going to be dependent upon what your overall goals are. If your goal happens to be, I want to decide upon the best financial aid package I can get or the best merit aid package I can get, then maybe perhaps you're rounding out a few more probable schools and possible schools because that's where you might get a bit more merit aid. Right. If it happens to be that you're gunning for name recognition, Chances are you're going to find that name recognition within your reach set of schools. And so it could be that you're applying to a few more of those. Um, So I'd say 10 is, you know, I see oftentimes plenty of students applying to 10, and I think that's absolutely reasonable. It gets tricky when you're starting to apply to a few more because applying to a few more uh, can negatively impact the process. It you know, spending time um, trying to cover all your bases in the multiverse <laughs> uh, rather than the one universe we live in, because you can only go to one school. But right. if you're trying to make sure right. that you get into all the IVs because you'd like to go to all of them or you'd like to go to all of these incredible state flagships, um, you know, that might take away time uh, that could be spent uh, writing a quality essay for yes. your school and yes. those schools aren't going to care how many other schools you apply to they're only no. going to see that one application and so you want to be able to dedicate as much time to that and and uh, make sure that your essays have impact okay rather than detract um it, it's not a perfect scale but we would we would say that as schools get more selective the expectations of their supplements tend to increase the number of words you need to write for them with additional essays will tend to increase and so the more schools you apply to that are more selective, the more work you're creating for yourself. And oh, by the way, those are schools where sort of rote responses to the essays will not serve you well, right? You really need personal, high quality essays in those spaces. And that's hard to do. So what I'm hearing from you is seven to 10 is a real sweet spot in terms of just the raw number of schools that there may be some students that consider sprinkling a couple more on there, depending on what their priorities are, whether that's maximizing scholarship options, or maybe looking at some more selective institutions. But you really have to be careful of letting that list get out of control. And I think it's also worth just underscoring that applying to more selective schools is not the same as buying more lottery tickets, right? If I buy more lottery tickets, I have more chances to win. But applying to more schools does not give me more chances 
of getting into any one because the quality of my application is ultimately the measure of my success. And as you said, these schools don't care where else you're applying. They're only evaluating your application for them, for that one school. And I think that's a hard thing for students to wrap their heads around because it seems to make sense that the more places I apply, the more chance I have, but it doesn't actually work that way. It doesn't actually work that way. It could also mean that you're going to get many more no's right. than you had anticipated. And you, right. you got to be prepared for that. I've seen some students who've, uh, you know, because they're applying to many more places, get many more no's. And I think sometimes if you are losing focus, if a student is losing focus, uh, to the point where they're not able to, you know, submit a quality application, they probably are going to get many more no's. I think it's probably best to consider strategy, <laughs> you know, in terms of your applications. I think there is some strategy involved in terms of the timing of your applications, of a student's applications that could have a much greater impact than perhaps submitting, you know, oodles and oodles of applications, applying to many more schools, um, applying to a few select choice schools, okay, yeah. can, and timing those applications uh, might be a more strategic uh, option for students. I like the way that you're bringing up strategy because I think when people talk about strategy in the application process, the way that they think about it is how do I strategically optimize my chances of getting into any one school? And you're thinking about strategy from an overall perspective where the goal is to maximize options. The goal is to put a student in a position where they've got schools they're getting into. And the goal is to find the best match for those particular students. And that's very different from, I want to go to Harvard. How do I make the best application for Harvard? That might not be a strategy there. There are some things around the margins that you can work on, but the strategy on the whole that I would say is, well, if you want to go there, let's let's think about your overall strategy and how Harvard might fit into that conversation. Mm -hmm. And I hear you saying that. And I think that that's really, really important. How do you talk to students about making sure that, okay, they've got one school they really love, but what's the level of interest and commitment and knowledge of the other six to nine schools on their list? <laughs> I think when you're talking about some schools that happen to be on the Uber selective side, perhaps, or maybe they might be on the Uber selective side for, you know, it depends on the student, right? Um, you know, what's uh, easy to get into for one student might be difficult for another, you know, yes. depending upon their grades and their test scores. When you're starting to look at those more so, um, reach schools, and I'll call them reach schools rather than selective schools. Right. right. Um, I think it's important to consider your other set of schools because a reach school is a reach school because it's difficult to get into and the odds are not great. No. And a student needs to prepare uh, for the fact that they might get a no. And it could be likely that they're going to get a no. And so it's important to look at the other set of schools that one is placing on the list to not put them, place them on the list uh, simply because you need <laughs> to place right. schools on the list. Yeah. Uh, you're placing them on the list because you've done research for those schools, uh, on those schools, and that feel, hey, this is a, a strong possibility. Um, I 
could be happy here. And because it could be one of the schools and one of your options at the end of the day. And you got to be happy with the the options in front of you. Um, otherwise, you're not necessarily going to college, right? That's right. And um, so strategically, it's great to try to plan for that dream school, but you need a backup plan. Uh, many students are going to have to rely on their backup plans, um, particularly if their dream school happens to be an uber selective school. Uh, maybe it's got an admit rate under 5%. The odds are you're not going to get in. That's right. Okay? Those are That's the, right. you know, the odds are you're not going to get in. So let's plan for that eventuality. Exactly. Hopefully it's not an eventuality. Hopefully it'll surprise you, but you need to be prepared. That's right. It, Amy in our first segment alluded to something that I thought was really great. And, and she was talking about looking at program quality and, and the match for the student and whether the schools are, are really strong in the particular programs they're interested in. And what she was underscoring was that there might be schools that are more selective or higher ranked, but for your particular program, a school that is a likely school to admit you is actually a better fit. And it's really interesting when you look at some of these students that are competitive, but perhaps not compelling for the most selective institutions, they there's not a really dramatic difference between the schools that are going to be hard for them to get into and the schools that are going to be easier for them to get into. The institutional quality is still quite high. And that's one of the things that I think is hard for students to wrap their head around. If I can get in, well, then I don't know if I want to go there. No, no, you should want to go there. It's still great, right? Like it's still an awesome option. And the work that you've put in over the course of your high school career has made this a likely school to admit you. So let's celebrate that rather than than saying, I'm not interested in you anymore. I got my sights set on the schools that don't necessarily want to admit me. Uh, and I think that's really important. We've got only a few minutes. I want to talk about early decision because mm -hmm. this is something that people will talk about. They'll say, I've got my list and I need my ED school as well. And when someone comes to you with that statement, how do you counsel them as, as an expert in this space? I got my list. I got to pick my ED school. Zara goes, what should we do? Which school should we pick? Absolutely. The first thing that I'm going to ask a student is, hey, what are your top choice schools? Where are the favorites on your list? Um, let's see them. You know, what are your top three, four, five favorites? And then let's see what kind of application, early admission program they have, because not every school is going to have early decisions. Some are going to have early action. Some are going to have restrictive early action. Um, some are going to have rolling admission. And so uh, it's best just to know. Okay, if your top choice school doesn't even have early decision, then maybe you're not even considering it. Yes. Um, should you consider an early admission process? I think students overall should should consider an early admission process. It distributes the work over the calendar, and you know yeah. there are um, preferences given to those students who submitted their applications uh, on the earlier side, who've demonstrated that they want to to go to a school, even applying early action might demonstrate that for those schools who are paying attention to that. And so, uh, you know, I'm generally encouraging a lot of um, early admission applications, whether it's early decision, it depends on, you know, who, you know, what are the favorite schools uh, for that particular student. Um, if they're absolute favorite happens to be an early decision school and they know they go there without a doubt, then um, I'm generally encouraging them to apply their early decision because it does boost the odds of admission. You can see the difference between those schools that 
post their early uh, admission uh, admit rates versus their regular admission admit rates, and you know there is a big difference. And so I'm I'm generally encouraging students to do that. I think oftentimes regular admission. Uh, it's to your peril if you find yourself in the regular <laughs> decision pool, I find. it's uh, um, true. Yeah. True. So uh, generally, try to go for, for an early school. If your school happens to have, let's say, a restrictive early action policy, think long and hard. Okay. Usually it's those, the most Uber select schools in the country that are going to have a restrictive early action policy where they're going to restrict where else you can apply early. Um, and that might inhibit yeah. odds of getting admitted to more schools. Okay. And yeah. um, is that worth, you know, strategy there? In, in um, my experience, it's not often worth it to apply restrictive early action unless we take a look at the rest of the list and we see it's actually not cutting off any other opportunities. But correct. if it is, I usually say let's apply regular decision. It's not going to be a yeah. big difference. Mm-hmm. And you mentioned those schools that you want to be in the early pool because the regular pool is a bloodbath. That tends to be schools that are not the most selective, but are quite selective. The ones that admit eight to 17% of their applicants, those are the spaces where the ED makes the big difference. And so a lot of people will say, well, I got to apply ED to MIT if I want to get in, but it's more like the ED to Northwestern makes the big difference as opposed to the ED to MIT. And it's, it's hard to think about these yeah. rounds and how they are yeah. different for different institutions. And, uh, and I mean, yeah, and I'm even encouraging a student to think, you know, perhaps consider multiple early schools. So, you know, if you're applying early decision to Northwestern, it's not going to, Northwestern is not going to inhibit you from applying early action to some other no, schools. So exactly. send in those applications as well. Try to send in as many as possible. That would be the advice. And this is great. I mean, on the whole, what I'm hearing is this wonderful sort of global perspective of thinking about all of the possibilities and strategizing from the whole, and that a college list has lots of different parts, and you want to think about all of the schools collectively. And I think that's just such a wonderful reminder for students that are figuring this out. It doesn't just come down to one school until May, but for now, you want to keep as many options on the table as possible. Absolutely. Thanks, Aragosa. Always always fun to talk to you about this. I think you're one of the more strategic-minded members of our team. And so coming and talking about the list, I think, is a real benefit to our listeners. Oh, thanks, Ian. Glad to be here. It was fun. Glad to have you. All right. Next week, we're going to be back to talk a little bit about honors colleges, what they are, and whether you should apply For many students, yes, you should. They're great. Uh, And we're also going to do some listener questions. So if you've got a question, you can always send an email to gettinginvoiceamerica at gmail.com. We'll be happy to answer that on a future show. I look forward to being back in a couple of weeks. Good luck with September, folks. Uh, The deadlines are right around the corner. Thank you for tuning in to Getting In, a college coach conversation. New episodes drop every Thursday. The goal of this show is to demystify the college admissions process for families around the globe. To help with this mission, please leave a review and share with your friends. And to learn more about Bright Horizons College Coach, visit GetIntoCollege.com.